Can you tell me your name and the year that you were born? I was born in 1963, which is ages ago, and my name is Graham Morgan. Where did you grow up, Graham? Oh, that, that gets a bit complicated. I was born in York in England, and I stayed there, I think, six months and moved to Scotland to um, Lucas. My dad was in the Air Force. And for most of my childhood, I wandered around mainly England and a lot of Norfolk, went to lots and lots of different schools and ended up in Sheffield at university and then finally ended up in Scotland. Oh, how long ago was it? Ages ago, um, ages and ages ago, about nearly 30 years ago. That's great. And what's your professional or work background? Uh, that's another complicated one. Um, I, did, I didn't get any qualifications at university. I was busy being um, distressed, I suppose. So um, I, I wrote poetry in my um, final exams and decided I was rejecting the um, conventional learning system for political reasons, but it was really because I was so miserable that I couldn't complete the coursework. <laughs> Um, and then I spent a very short time as a very unsuccessful yacht skipper sailing across the Atlantic and in the Far East, mainly because my dad's business once he left the Air Force was um, selling yachts. And in between times, I did a lot of voluntary work. I set up a drop-in centre run by young people, four young people in Sheffield and then helped set up a group called Awareness, which was a voice for people with a mental health problem in um, Edinburgh. And then I got my first job in an organization called CAPS, which has a very jargony name, Consultation and Advocacy Promotion Service, where I did loads about helping people speak out about the world, about mental illness, about life, setting up projects, setting up voices and all that sort of thing, doing magazines and this sort of thing. I got tired of politics and Edinburgh and car fumes and escaped Edinburgh with my then wife and my young son to Highland, starting off in Kiyusi and then going to Carbridge in Nam, where I worked as a development worker for a group called Hug Action for Mental Health, which acted as a voice for people with mental health problems across the Highlands, which quickly gained quite a good national reputation and sometimes an international reputation and did loads of work around stigma and changing attitudes and loads of work about lobbying and campaigning and speaking at conferences. And um, a large part of what we did in HUG was around creative expression to shift attitudes and encourage learning about um, mental illness and better ways of speaking with us. I left there when I fell in love with Wendy having left my wife before that. And um, I now live in Argyle and I work for the Mental Welfare Commission for Scotland. And I have a terrible job title. I'm an engagement and participation officer, open brackets, lived experience, close brackets, which I love doing. It's taken me to the United Nations and to conferences all over the place and to lots of lovely parts of Scotland with lovely people. I also, um, in my personal time, do the occasional guest blog on Twitter, which I don't really understand, but I write things and send them off to people and they go somewhere. And I've written two books or memoirs about my life with a mental illness. I'm, I've got a diagnosis of schizophrenia and um, 
have been detained under a compulsory community treatment order for the last 10 years. So I, I talk about that experience, but also about the natural world and falling in love and children and Dash the dog and things like that. Does that describe my professional background a bit? That's fab. It sounds like you've had a very, very varied background. That sounds super interesting. Um, the, the next section of the interview is around your involvement with the mental health and arts movement in Scotland. So what, what was your first role within mental health and the arts? I'm trying to think back to what it was. It wouldn't, well, oh, actually the, the, my very, very first role would have been helping support a magazine called Beyond Diagnosis. Oh, how long ago was that? That's, I'm no good at maths, but it would have been 19, probably 1993 or something like that, ages ago, which was a lovely magazine. It was a high quality magazine produced alongside CAPS. And I remember loads of meetings with photographs and articles from across Scotland and issues being painstakingly created and sent out. But I don't remember what happened to the magazine. I think people must have eventually got tired and moved on from it. So that was that was the first, I think that's the first and only artistic sort of thing I got involved in. And that was in Edinburgh. When I moved to Highland, what did we start off with first? We did a number of things. The first thing, the first thing and biggest thing we did, which wasn't my responsibility, was a number of plays on a theme of mental health or mental illness. Um, my colleague Emma was responsible for it, but I managed the project to some extent and wandered around like some sort of mascot when the play toured the Highlands. And that was lovely. We had um, the first play was very, very moving uh, and was about self-harm and suicide and about encouraging people to get help. Second play was a multimedia thing around eating disorders. The third play was a play called Baggage. That was written by um, Helen, who was one of the Hug members. That was a brilliant play. That was very good about young people in school and the burdens they're going through going to school. Anyway, those plays probably reached about 10,000 young people. And the evaluations were brilliant. I think people were saying, 92% of people were saying their attitude shifted as a result of seeing them. But I played a, a tiny part in those. I was just the manager of Hug and Emma did it and I wandered around and I helped facilitate the workshops. I certainly didn't do any of the acting or any of the writing, but I did help educate some of the actors. So that's that one. Then around that time, I began to gain a wish to do some creative writing. I was sent to Moniach Moor by my wife to learn about creative writing because I'd always said I wanted to be a writer. And so I went there and loved it. And over time built up a re relationship with Moniach Moor, which is the Writers' Centre. And for quite a few years, we had writing sessions with members of HUG and writers from Moniach Moor and staff at Moniach Moor. We would go maybe four times a year and spend the weekend and maybe a Monday or a Friday there, writing, learning to express ourselves, creating things. And from that, we developed a creative writing group that's running to this day, which met weekly and produced some books of writing and things like that, did some performances, 
that sort of thing. What else did we do? It was really good. We met some lovely writers, really, really nice writers. They were absolutely wonderful. And the, the really nice thing for about it was I, I went along as a worker and my, my role was much more supportive than creative. But I was more a participant in the course than anything else. So I got a chance to practice on my writing too. And back back in um, Inverness, we're busy, we'll be busy facilitating our writing group. Um, alongside the writing group was another one. When I was in um, New Craig Psychiatric Hospital, the last time I was in that, a speech and language, th language therapist was wandering around the wards looking for people to join her writing group, which was lovely because I was on constant obs at the time and unable to go anywhere. So when she was on my ward, I would sit and write. And gradually over time, we established a group which um, I helped facilitate once I left hospital, which included patients in the hospital and in the community, which was called the Biscuit Tin. And I can't remember whether we did any performances or not. Along the time, we did, we did a number of performances in, in um, town halls and places like that. And at the Mental Health and Arts Festival from the very start of its beginning. So we would... Um, do poetry and spoken word stuff at, at the opening festivals and things like that too, as a group of writers with an interest in mental health. I'm wittering on a, on a lot. What else did we do? We did loads. We had an, a writing magazine, which was lovely. Um, who did, I think it was um, Margaret McKechnie was the main editor of it, but someone else did it too, which was about a quarterly publication of members writing. And we got involved with a number of projects. One of the projects we did was with the um, Scottish Waterways Trust, where we went with a worker from there, from Fort William up the canal to um, Inverness. And the project was called From from There to Here. So we had people moving from Fort William to meet us in Inverness and us moving down. And as we went, we um, recorded sounds along the waterway, did drawings, did um, impromptu bits of poetry, got talked to by canal people and writery people, all congregated on a canal boat where we did some more talking and some more writing. And from that came an exhibition, which we highlighted in Edinburgh, in um, Inverness, Fort William and Ullapool at Cayley's. So we had the exhibition, we had writings and readings, and we had bands playing music at them, which was lovely. It was a lovely thing to do. And I, I really enjoyed that. We, we had projects like that all the time. Another one would have been um, with Inverness Museum. We um, were given a treasure of um, old materials that traveling people used to use and researched them and documented them as you would an exhibit in the museum. But we also teamed up with Moniach Moore, the Writers' Centre, and met people from the travelling community and heard their stories and went to many of the sites that they'd used to live and camp at in the past and heard more stories and um, created an exhibition of artwork that was um, ultimately put up for a number of weeks in Inverness Museum. And we did another thing with Inverness Museum, and I can't remember what it was. It was an arts project. It was really interesting, and I loved doing it, but I can't remember exactly what the purpose of it was. But it ended up with a great exhibition, and me being very proud of one of my paintings, because I'm an absolutely awful um, drawer. So that's arts, painting, writing, speaking. Um, one of our workers created a number of films in Hug, 
on subjects of mental health. And we also used for many, many years narrative and stories as a way of training professionals in mental health. So we we met thousands and thousands of professionals just telling our stories and giving contradictory stories as a way of raising awareness about what we go through, which was lovely, um, but always quite terrifying when you just started off. Um, that's very good. Um, films, plays, stories. There were art exhibitions too, which volunteers organised, and things like um, panel sessions at the Mental Health and Arts Film Festival, which we did too. So that was all hug stuff. That was all done as a worker with hug. What I've done since then is I, I wrote a memoir, which is truly awful, so don't look it up ever, called Feathers in My Soul, which at the time I was very proud of, and I think it sold maybe a hundred copies, if, if I'm lucky, probably not even that. And then after I had come out of hospital, I think about four years after I'd last come out of hospital, I wrote a memoir called Start, which has been published by Fledgling Press and has got some lovely reviews. So I feel quite boastful about it, but I've no idea how many copies it sold. Um, but I've been to lots of author events across the country and in papers and things like that. So it's been quite nice. And alongside the way I've started writing a new book about my partner's dad's death and our life down in Argyle and Dash the Dog and collecting seashells and all these sorts of things, which I hope will be published sooner or later. And as being in, in the role of being a proper writer, which I'm not really, I've just published a book, but I, I'm meant to be a proper writer. My publisher got me to have a Twitter presence, which confused me hugely. So I've, by doing the Twitter thing, I'm now, now meant to be doing blogs for people when they offer. And I'm slowly setting up a website or someone setting it up for me where I shall spout out about all things mental health in a creative way. And I'm missing out something huge, but I can't remember what it is. But those those are the main things we've done. Does that does that make sense? It does, it does. And it sounds like you've been so busy and you're you're such a creative person. And what I'm interested in is how how you ended up getting involved in the kind of mental health arts movement or scene and what, what kind of drew you to that? Um I think there's a number of routes I got into it. First of all was um, the whole activism route. So having experienced mental health problems in my late teens and early twenties, I was very keen to, to change the world. I was full of changing the world ideals and very radical and very embittered and very excited about setting things up. And that got me involved. And once I moved to Edinburgh, I got even more involved in changing the world through collective advocacy. And I think that the real steer to get into um, creative stuff was, I got increasingly asked to give speeches at um, conferences and things. I must have, um, sorry about that. Um, I must have given hundreds and hundreds of speeches now. And so um, I found I had to craft the speeches and I found initially when I first started giving those speeches, it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I've got a story of my very, very first speech. It was in Edinburgh in the time when we all smoked. So I was in a smoke filled room. I got onto the stage, sat down, pushed back my chair and it fell off the end of the stage. And um, then I gave my speech at top speed as fast as I possibly could. 
rushed out of the conference, smoked nearly a whole pack of cigarettes, and then vaguely made my way back into the conference. So that, that was my initiation into speech making. But crafting a speech and getting the personal into the land of policy, I thought was, um, for me, liberating. It was at times hugely emotional when I was giving talks. Um, there, there are parts of my life with schizophrenia that are not the most pleasant and talking publicly about it in front of hundreds of people in the early days was um, quite difficult. It was quite strange when you were trying to, I always read from a script because I'm too frightened to ad lib. So I would read from that and sometimes I'd find that my, my eyes had blurred over with tears. So I had to, I had to work out how to get rid of the blurry, blurry eyes before I could carry on reading. So that's, that's how I got into it. That was the first start of creativity was um, learning to turn a speech from not being anything like a PowerPoint thing into a um, almost a piece of art, but which was trying to make a change. And then, then it all flowed from there, uh, especially with Hug, where we realized um, very early on that if we wanted to keep our members' interest up, we needed to do things we enjoyed. So um, standing around campaigning for crisis centers or whatever we were doing at the time becomes very wearying when you're not making a difference whilst you know you make a massive difference if you um, if you do an exhibition of paintings and people are coming around seeing it and speaking to you. Or if, um, as one of our volunteers did, you create a series of artistic postcards on mental health themes and you're holding press conferences to illustrate them and you're passing them around pubs and things like that. That tangible, visible expression of something or audible expression of something and the knowledge that it's making a difference at the same time was was lovely. And sometimes it wasn't even about changing public perceptions, going to Moniach um, Moor and staying residentially. Some of our members there, for various reasons, would not eat in public or had never slept in a, another house with other people for years and years. And for them, the having the bravery to eat a meal in front of another person or to sleep knowing there's a man along the room who's not along the other corridor who's snoring, or equally, um, being able to participate in the performance at the end of our stay was um, wonderful for some people. It was uh, uh, the, the evaluations, I hate saying evaluations, but we did them, but they were really good. It was lovely to see them because people were so enthusiastic and talked as much about the liberation of speaking out and doing things and cooking meals together as the actual creation of works of art. Does that, does that, that I've thrown out of words, but that, that gets us somewhere. That is great, yeah. Um... And you, you talked about making a, a difference and, and what would you say you were trying to achieve through your work, whether that was through your own writings or the work that you did with Hog and Moniac Moore and the exhibitions that you did? What, what were you trying to achieve? I think the main thing, I've got to be careful here because I didn't, didn't necessarily want to change attitudes. I, I, I have a slightly unusual take on things in that I think if one in four of us are meant to have a mental health problem, probably even higher than that, then nearly all of us know someone or have personal experience of mental ill health. So I think stigma is a very different thing to just ignorance. But I think for me, it's bearing witness and bearing witness as far as we can with honesty. And from that, I think people learn. In, in a lot of the stuff we did, we did not say this is what's happened to us and you have to do this, this and this to change your behavior. We told our story 
and had conversations about our story, or we wrote our story, or we drew our story, and left people to draw their own conclusions and had conversations where we weren't blaming, we were engaging in dialogue and conversation and not seeing people as the enemy and often recognizing that in our audience there would be many people who would be both professionals but also people who lived experience themselves who might be very moved by what we were saying. So it, it was that sort of thing. I've forgotten the question now but um, I think that's what we were trying to achieve was the um, making it real and knowing that if we make the reality of numerous lives and experiences real then the attitudes towards us will change in ways we can't necessarily predict but we will become much more human to other people and sometimes the bizarre and very frightening things we've done will become understandable and people will think twice when the next section is or something like that does that sound okay yes it does that's that great thank you um, when when you first started out, I think you mentioned it was during the 90s when you started doing mm. your creative work. Um, how was how was mental health viewed at the time? Oh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> this this is difficult. Um, my very first creative work was um, before that. That it was in um, 1980. Three, I think, when I was in an asylum in Sheffield. And um, after that, I did some work on a student magazine. And I suppose then it was very different. There were, there were hundreds and hundreds of people in the hospital. It was your stereotypical place of what you imagine asylum to be like. But because it was being closed gradually, it was even more run down. So there were holes in the walls. There was no room, there was lots of noise. Some of the attitudes of the nurses were quite horrific. And some of the attitudes were more modern and progressive than they are today. And so that was what first woke me up to the world of mental illness and to some of the stigma. And to some of, in those days, I was more concerned about the attitude of professionals than I was about the public. I was quite angry with some of the people I saw. Like I, I had one psychiatrist who, um, he was really weird. He had this therapy. You would, go, you would go along to see him and you would sit there and he'd ask how you were and you'd say fine because you always say fine when you're asked how you are. And then he would sit in silence and 40 minutes later, he would look at his watch and say, well, that's, that's the end of that. And you would just be about to speak by that time, but you, you would get up, feel disappointed and walk home. And that carried on for about 10 sessions until I gave up. And then they got cross at me for not going. So in those days, I was not very pleased with the way I was treated and other people were treated. Um, when I was in Edinburgh, I don't know. I don't know how much attitudes have changed. Mental health is always on everyone's lips. Um, everyone talks about it nowadays. Um, I, I certainly think attitudes towards people with depression and anxiety are much more accepted i think um attitudes towards people who are psychotic or have schizophrenia or um, have a borderline personality disorder can maybe still be suspect um maybe not as bad as they were but i, I don't think everyone's that comfortable when they realize someone has a diagnosis such as mine although i've only very very rarely come across overt prejudice towards me it's been unpleasant when it's happened but um, very rarely has it happened. I, I find um, 
that I've been in the fortunate position that by being very, very visible about my experience, people quickly see behind behind the label and so I get a very positive reaction. Uh, I have a, a maybe a naive approach, but I, I think that by being open and upfront about what I've been through, the um, doubts people have about someone like me are vanish quite quickly. And also, I'm, I'm also lucky, unlike some other people, in that I have a posh voice and I'm very articulate and I'm middle class. So I seem I'm in a very acceptable face of, um, of schizophrenia, if that makes sense, too. So um, I haven't been witnessed to the worst of it. But certainly, yes, in Highland, we did a report on stigma and some of it was horrific. Now, especially when people were talking back to the past, people were talk, talked about... Um, people being run out of villages because they had mental health problems and people being seen as paedophiles and all that sort of thing. People being given the name of Mad Mary and like that in, in their community. So yes, it, was, it was really bad. And I think sometimes it still is. If you don't fit in and are seen as different and people don't think that you belong in the community you're a part of, which is a long-winded way of saying, I don't know. I should have read all the stigma surveys and reports of how um, stigma's changed, but I don't know how it's changed. I know there's a lot of interest in mental health. I know some people find it frightening, and I think some people find it frightening because they witness it in each other and recognise that what we go through, whether you want to put a smiley face or not, is sometimes quite horrific. And... Um, that's hard to deal with. I think that stigma is maybe quite natural. Um, I know some of the things I've done have hugely damaged people I, I love very dearly. And um, I think they're, the fact they recoiled from that has got nothing to do with stigma and much more to do with the pain that mental illness can cause us to exhibit through our own distress. That's a bit preachy, but um, I'll stop there. Yes, yes. <laughs> And you, you mentioned that mental health is, is on everyone's lips nowadays. And do you think there's been a change in the kind of frequency that people talk about mental health from, say, the 80s and 90s to now, both in terms of their own mental health and just mental health more generally within the society? Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure there is. The, the silly thing is mental health has been on my lips since the 80s because my community was people with mental health problem. But I suppose if I if I go back, I can think that my grandma was not told about my diagnosis because people were worried about how she would react to it. So maybe there is there, there has been a change because we would never do that in my family now. Um, I think. What was the question again? It was about the the frequency that people talk about mental health and oh, yes, how it's yeah. changed over time. Yes. So. So it has changed. Like, I, I'm very bad at Twitter. My, my Twitter handle has lots of numbers after its name. So I, I'm really one of the worst Twitter people ever. But if I go on Twitter, and, may, and it is partly because I look from it, but so many conversations are about mental health and about being proud of who you are and recovery and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's everywhere. And um, people may, may dislike it, but I'm quite proud of the princes and people for speaking out. They've got everyone involved in it. And maybe they're from a different community to us, but they've made it. They made it centre stage, which I think is lovely. People say we shouldn't have celebrities doing these things, but I, I, I sort of quite like it sometimes. Um, yeah, and yes, like like just in in, um, in the COVID thing in the lockdown, everyone's talking about the impact on people's mental health as a, as if it was an issue. 
whilst in the 80s, no one would have even thought about it. They, <laughs> they wouldn't have occurred to that. It just wouldn't have occurred to them, no. So, so yes, it's changed, I think. And, and when you started out, um, for instance, with your work with HUG, did you feel that there was a, a mental health uh, arts community at the time? No, no, I don't think there was much of one. There was some, there was... Um, in those days, it was more in England, there was survivor's poetry and there was Lapidus or something like that, a mental health and writing thing. Um, and there were the occasional events where people did artistic things. I, I remember um, someone who's now dad, Alison Alexander of the Royal Edinburgh Patients Council, set up a whole evening of um arts events poetry song everything and um that would have been in the early 90s and it was attended by a few hundred people so it did exist and there were trips across to places where people said let's write about it and let's speak out but it was still in its infancy i i don't know how big a community of it is artistically now but certainly i know the scottish book trust are very visible in promoting stuff around mental health and so on and there's loads of um loads of things happened but I don't I don't necessarily consider myself as part of an arts community I, I'm an imposter really the fact that I've written a book and go to a few author events doesn't mean I feel like a proper artsy person so I, I suppose the arts community is much bigger than I'm aware of like the stuff happening in Edinburgh with the um the arts festival and well all the arts festivals you know that that's that's such a massive thing that every year now so um yes it must be a big thing How did you um, find people to connect with and, and share ideas, or, or did that not really that not really happen? Around arts or speaking yeah. out? Um, around arts and mental health. Um, I'll do it. I'll talk about the Highlands. Uh, when we first started there, um, a lot of people said people in the Highlands are very reticent. They're not going to come forward. They won't want to talk about the subject. There's so much stigma that you're not going to get anyone wanting to speak. And um, in the very early days, in 96, I went round a series of drop-in centres or anywhere where I could find people where they met and gave talks about my own experience and how I thought that the world we were in when we had a mental illness was quite unjust and that if we just spoke about it individually, nothing much would happen, that we need to work collaboratively. And um, after about 10 months, people were getting fed up. They said, um, we've given you your name and address. Let's, let's just do it. So we started off with a group of about 100 people and expanded to a group of about 500 people. And it was easy to be in touch with people because Initially, we were quite successful and got quite well known. We, we had a number of things that were clearly visibly successful. So we were credited with the site of the new psychiatric hospital. We were credited with getting liaison psychiatry established in general hospitals and information about drugs provided and so on and so on. And that was listened to. And so people began to talk about it. And also by being continually present at drop-in centres and places where people gathered, people knew us. So I, I was there for 20 years. So, you know, going to the Haven in um, 
in Wick, I must have been there, I don't know, let's see, a hundred times, more than a hundred times. So I knew everyone really, really well. And so when you're known, then people put them in touch with you. And if you're, if you try to be pleasant with each other and try to include everyone's opinion, then you all begin to get involved. And so, so it was just that, it was just a community coming together. I know many years, some years ago, people used to call Hug a sort of great big extended family that many people had lost their family in many ways or, or become alienated from them. And that especially those in Inverness, there was a sense of a coming together where you supported each other, you made each other tea and coffee, you ate together and you busily changed the world together. So um, that was quite a nice feeling. And certainly in the early days when we were all around the Highlands all the time and always succeeding in doing things, it was a very connected community which people came into. And as time went by, we got more and more mental health professionals who said they wanted to join, but they also had mental health problems, which I thought was really good because it, it gave a um, it gave a nice ethos to it. It, it stopped being the um, we hate psychiatry to saying we're trying to make a difference for everyone and that there are lots and lots of different experiences. I think the main thing really was that we did incorporate everyone's opinion. So some people would say that psychiatry is an oppressive barbaric practice. Other people would say it's a liberating life-saving practice. And if we were consulting people or speaking out, we would include all those views. So I think to an extent, people felt included in what we were doing and a part of it. I hope they did anyway. That, that's, what, that's what I felt and that's what some of the people I knew told me. So that's, that's sort of how it worked. And also doing small things. So um, not having to do the most perfect thing each time. And sometimes people coming along to do a writing group and not doing anything, just going outside to smoke or going outside to stuff envelopes because they don't want to do anything creative. And other times doing a performance in, in the town hall. So... And how do you think um, the arts can help facilitate those conversations around mental health or enable people to, to talk about their own mental health or um, sort of societal mental health? Oh, I don't know, but um, I learned most of what I initially learned most of what I did from mental health by reading books by people who had had mental health problems. That gave me a sense of connection and belonging that I'd never had before. Being able as a, I, I know I'm ancient now and, and getting close to 60, but as a teenager, being alone and very distressed and being able to read books by people who've been through it, even if they were very fa famous people like Sylvia Plath, it gave me, uh, it stopped me being so alone. And I think that's, that's really important. I think, I think it helps you understand things and also it gives you access to experiences that you might not have had so for instance one of my favorite books of recent years was the um panopticon by i think jenny fagan and um i loved that because it's a it's about an experience i i've never remotely had and it, it was just so hugely moving so it gives it gives so much i i, I can't I, i'm becoming inarticulate because i don't know the language of the arts but um I read, I get so much from reading books and to hearing things. I very rarely go to plays and things, but um, maybe I could describe it. This, this is going a bit over, a bit over the edge because I probably shouldn't say it, but the first hug play we did, which was um, about suicide and self-harm, it opened with um, 
it was at four actors and it opened with um, Radiohead playing Creep. And the first scene was incredibly powerful. And um, often people in the school audience, which would be up to a hundred people, you know, maybe 10 people would leave in tears. And because we'd prepared, we were always ready to go and support them if they needed support. And they were always forewarned of the subject. But the fact was that they were in tears. And what was really important was we would always speak to them after the performance and they would always say, I am so glad that was shown and it affected me personally, either because a family member's been through it or I'm going through it and I need help. But it needed to be said. And I think, I think there's a power in, like I said earlier, bearing witness and, and saying this, these things do happen um, and trying to examine them and sometimes looking at them in, in a slightly more complex way than, than a series of minutes and outcomes can do. In a, in a meeting about how to improve a hospital. I think you can do far more education by telling a story than by um, writing a action plan sometimes. I'm, I'm really interested in, in the plays that you did. How, how did you manage to get the, the schools on board? Well, this wasn't me, this wasn't me. This was our worker. We had, the worker who was doing it had gone into schools already and developed a relationship with them. I think going into the PSE classes and um, through that gained a few schools that were keen. And we were the, the first play, which I can't remember what it was, was only shown in maybe eight schools. It wasn't known too much about. And I think we might've been approached by the actors and it was a success. And the worker who was doing this was very very good at developing relationships with the schools and because this, the play had been a success it gave us the impetus to do more plays so there were a number of things that that this person did first of all we got a, a a series of grants from comic relief which funded a lot of the work so it wasn't just a um an amateur dramatics thing so we worked in partnership with eden court theatre company with their youth outreach program. So we had actors recruited by the company, some who had mental health problems and some who didn't, and that was just by coincidence. And we wrote the play with um, professional playwrights, some of who had mental health problems and some of whom didn't. Um, we trained all those actors and the producers in the reality of mental illness. So they had their own awareness training sessions too before plays were done. And we worked through the script to give a reality check to it as it was produced. And um, we also had a connection with the primary mental health workers who went into school. So we were able to reassure the schools that if the play was upsetting or did produce problems, that actually it could be really good because it might guide young people to sources of help rather than having them remaining isolated and lonely with no one to talk to. So it could be seen as a, a positive thing and that it would both raise awareness, but also demonstrate to young people that there were mental health workers who were based among a number of schools who could be approached by the young people, which I think all sold it quite well. Also the part of doing it was quite charismatic, so that made a difference to it too. And um, that was about it, I think. We had, we had other workers come along to the place too, so there would, there would be mental health professionals there too. And um, that was how it went on. 
and and then this this work had developed a much stronger relationship with the schools. We did whole school mental health awareness days with Speak. There was a group called Speak that she set up, which was about young people and having a voice in mental health. So they they did loads of work and had um, young people employed in Speak, changing the world and doing DVDs and all sorts of things. So um, for a time, it was really good. Um, I quite liked that. Yes, it was good. I just stood on the outskirts and tried to be reassuring and, and got... Can't, I, I, I was taken to the far-flung parts of the Highlands because um, I just was. So I, w- I would go along with the actors to places like Kinlochberthy and places like that. And um, it was very good. I was um, I was always hugely intimidated by, by them because the actors were so funny and, and so intelligent so, and so articulate. And I, I'm not particularly funny or, or particularly articulate. So I, I would wander around just sort of mooching and, and they would be doing all sorts of... Um, escapades and things but it was it was a lovely time and very emotional and lovely to see it making a difference it was really good to go into the schools and have people afterwards say that was fantastic and to be organized enough to do evaluations so we could show the schools for the next round of times that the play had been a good one and had been successful and I think finally we ended up with an agreement with the council we hadn't initially had an agreement throughout the council but I think finally the council woke up and thought we need to have some sort of agreement about this which I can't remember considering I was the manager I should have had something to do with that but I, I left it to the person who was organizing it does that that, that was the main thing with the, with the play yeah that's great and um, I was just wondering what how important you feel it is that um, you mentioned that people with lived experience were involved in both the writing and and the acting of the plays. How, how important do you think that is? I, I will be a bit reactionary. Um, the plays themselves, we, we may be very judgmental, but we wanted to make sure that the plays were delivered by professional actors. We were very aware that if we did it within our own ranks there may be some good actors but there was no way we could commit to providing a play that we could guarantee a whole 200 people in the school would engage with and say that's really really interesting and really exciting and really vibrant we just didn't have the skill to do either the visual effects or or the or the writing of the play but um we were able to influence it from from our lived experience and we were able to take um, our members along to the workshops where we would, where, where the play would then go into the reality and we would facilitate a workshop with the um, children. So then, then we would have people with lived experience engaging with the children there. And we were lucky that in a number of the plays, some of the actors were open about having lived experience, which was lovely. And they would join in once they were out of character and say, actually, in my real life, I've gone through this too. But we didn't have a say in recruiting actors with lived experience. I think they were just attracted to it. And the final play, it was one of the actors who had become a member of Hug because she liked the, the play so much. And it turned out she was a playwright too. So then it became much more of a Hug production. And if the um, if the grants are carried on, then maybe it would have become even more based in lived experience with um, the playwright with lived experience and as an actor and so on. But um, having to constantly 
prove innovative ideas to comic relief and to be brand new each time. You can run out of excuses to fund a play, if that makes sense, which is a bit sad because it was a wonderful way of getting across to young people and, and to doing something very creative and was very exciting. What, what impact do you think that that work and um, you managing that project had on, on your own mental health? Oh, um, it had, this, this will sound so prejudiced. When I, I, I always dreaded going into schools. Um, we did so much work into school, in schools, and I always assumed that one day I would be speaking to a class or an assembly or whatever, and um, you would tell from the children's expression that they were not interested and thought you were an idiot and didn't want to be there. And that terrified me all the time. And I think the best thing it did was that it opened my mind to how enthusiastic and open the young people were to learning about mental health and being open about their own mental health problems. There was so much enthusiasm and um, connection from the young people. It was, um, it was wonderful for my mental health because each time I'd go in thinking they're going to be horrible to me, each time they'd be lovely to me. And sometimes they would ask extremely personal questions because um, my diagnosis is dramatic. And um, they were fascinated and they weren't judgmental. And there were occasions when um, some of the young people who were seen as the um, more disruptive young people seemed to participate much more than, than the other people, maybe because it connected with their lives. So, so maybe when one of our, our members was going into school and she was talking about losing her children into care, that would have connected with some of the young people who had maybe been through some fairly traumatic experiences themselves. So for me, it was liberating in that it made me enthused by the attitude that I met in young people. Uh, the plays themselves, the first play I found incredibly emotional. I always wanted to cry at it too. It was um, so well acted and such a good script. And that caused me some tension because I was, we worried for a long time as to whether we were actually damaging the children and whether it was too powerful a play. Um, but from what people said, it was, it was, it was very helpful. Um, yeah. And, and just, um, yeah, it was good. It was a good feeling. Um, and I, I can't just introducing the play and summing up and all that sort of stuff. You become the visible person, a sort of compare in a way. And, um, I was nervous about that because although I can speak at conferences, I'm not very good at um, speaking without a script. So I was, I was quite halting, but it all worked okay. So I enjoyed it and I loved meeting the actors. They were wonderful. They, they just made life vibrant and exciting. So it was a, a whole process that was lovely. I, I really enjoyed it. Fabulous, thank you. And um, what would you say the, the challenges were in, in the, the different works that you've done relating to arts and mental health? The biggest challenge is if it's too emotional. Um, and if things happen that are not expected, this might not sound like um, the arts, but I think giving our stories as part of awareness training is, um, is an artistic endeavor. Uh, the, way, the way we speak and gave narrated our story, I think, I think was artistic in a way. And that 
there are things that can go wrong. The, the worst thing that ever went wrong was um, we went to um, do some training of mental health officers and one of our members walked into the room and realized that one of the mental health officers who had been one of the mental health officers who originally as a social work her worker had taken her children off of her into care. And that caused a great panic. And he came up to us and said, I'll just go. And she said, we talked about it and it, it resolved itself and actually had a really, really good outcome. But it's being aware that in small communities, because the Highland community is quite small, even if we go across to Grampian, and um, with emotional issues, we're going to come across very, very personal situations. And sometimes people will talk about things that stimulate a lot of upset. We tended to find that it was less the hug members giving their stories or doing their performances that stimulated the upset, and it was more the audiences. So um, that especially people who were in audiences who also had mental health problems. I, th I think they sometimes weren't expecting the frankness and openness with what we said. And for some of them, that was wonderful. They said, this is being talked about and I've never dared to hear this before. And for others, they said, this is just, this is just too exposing. So I, th I think nowadays we would, we would say it all had a trigger warning and um, you needed to be aware of those trigger warnings. Um, but I, I personally think that as long as people are, have some foreknowledge for of what's going to be said, that that's sort of okay. I, I think um, emotion can be powerful, but it can also be a way through to something too. Um, yeah, and sometimes things went wrong on residentials, you know, just um, people getting drunk, setting fire to their poems, stomping out into the snow. Um, it happens. We, we, um, I was just saying to someone else earlier that mental health is not a nice, neat, easily talked about thing. We, we do things that are not always the prettiest. And sometimes when we're a group of each other and we're all emotional, we can say things that are not the prettiest or, like I said, set fire to our, to our poems in, in outrage that we weren't picked to read our poem that, session, that moment. So these things happen. Um, and the main thing is to make sure that we can be around and supportive enough for the people who, who find it hard when they're doing something or are just finding it hard because they're so anxious to get their story out. Sometimes that's where it goes wrong is if someone's being saying something in a poem or something and it's overrun and they've been expecting to come onto the stage for the last 20 minutes and then suddenly they're on and they feel they're in a hurry. Then that's when things can go wrong. And that's where basic organization in some ways is a safety feature for um, people who, for whom their, their expression is, is powerful and valuable and needs validated. For the, for the events that you've just been mentioning, um, you know, where people would perform their poetry, etc. Who, who was the audience for those events? See, most of it would have been most that I can remember has been um, uh, participants at the Arts and Mental Health Film Festival in Highland, usually at the opening ceremony. So a mixture of people lived experience, the public, professionals, and so on. Probably a preponderance of people with lived experience. 
uh, we did do a few public performances and I can't remember whether those were part of Hug. I know at one stage, this, this was the worst thing I ever did. I, I, I recited poetry in the high street in Forest, and it was awful. It was with a writing group and we'd said, we'll do something for the arts and film festival, not on the arts, something festival, something or other. And we just turned up in the middle of the street and there were crowds going around there shopping and um, we started reading poetry to, <laughs> to the thin air. And people did gather around, but it was acutely embarrassing. So most, I think, I think most of those poetry things have been with um, with a mixture of public and people with lived experience and some professionals. But I, I really couldn't give you an indication of how many of each. I think you could probably look at, there's probably some evaluations in the Highland coffers of something that would tell you, but I, I really don't know. What would you say that your your main successes have been in terms of um, mental health and the arts, or what what are you most proud of? Mm. Personally, I'm most proud of what Hug did. I think I think it used the arts. Not we didn't set out to use the arts. We just found out we were using it as a way of getting a message across. I thought that was wonderful because we were a community of people doing things together and finding common but diverse voices. That was wonderful and it's so much better doing a creative writing group and cre producing a book than um writing the minutes of a meeting it was just it was just really really good i think being selfish i'm most proud of my book start um that took me i think it was five years to write and took ages and ages and enough people who are good writers that's a bit subjective but this they're known, seen as good writers, say it's a really good book for me to think that I produced something that was worthwhile. And it means I, I can almost call myself a writer when people say, what do you do? I, can, I sometimes dare to say I'm a writer. And then I hastily say, well, I'm also an engagement and participation officer, but I prefer to call myself a writer. Um, I'm quite um, starstruck by the idea of being an artistic or writery person because I'm not really, I, I just get involved on the periphery. Okay, uh, the next section that I'd like to talk about is, is about mental health and the arts um, in perhaps a sort of more generally or in a kind of bigger perspective. Um, why do you think it's important that mental health is covered in the arts? Uh, because it's a part of human life and mental health is a part of all of our lives and mental distress is a part of nearly most of our lives mental illness is dramatic and horrid and needs talked about and not to have it in the arts would be really weird um it just doesn't make sense not to um i, I think it's just such an everyday part of life that you would automatically include it and I, I think it always has been in some ways i think it's more consciously included in the arts but um so much of Theatre and film and so on seems to be about emotion and art and um, and life. You know, mental health is about life too, isn't it? You can't avoid it. Uh, when you go down the mental illness route, I think it's it gives voice to people who are sometimes not heard, and sometimes that's done really well, and sometimes it's um, 
in the past been done in quite a stereotypical way. And I, I think that's that's changing over time. And you perhaps touched on this a little bit earlier, but who would you say is most likely to be impacted in a positive way through attending arts events? Oh, well, the thing to say would be the public, but I, 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 I haven't noticed huge numbers of the public going along to mental health and arts events. I, I think there's no bad thing in saying this. It, it's often people with lived experience themselves. I think sometimes there's a sense of recognition and connection and belonging that occurs at an event like that, where you're less alienated and less isolated and can feel I'm a part of something and that this speaks something towards my reality too. And I think that's being, being um, pompous, qu quite empowering and um, liberating sometimes. I, I certainly like it when I, when I hear people giving voice at, at events like that. And what role do you think that art plays when it comes to tackling mental health, stigma and discrimination? Or does it play a role? Or I think it, it does. Yes, it does. Yes. And there are so many ways it can do because I, well, actually, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what is artistic and what is um, not artistic, but so many things about self-expression seem to me to be about the arts. Uh, having said that, I sometimes think cooking is artistic, so I, I maybe get myself a bit lost. But um, I, I think it's got a major role because it it makes things powerful. You, what, when we do our um, awareness training, people often write afterwards, I learned more from hearing directly from people with lived experience than I ever would do on a course or reading from a textbook. And I think that that's the nub of it, that um, people speaking their reality in a way that is, that connects is, um, is the way to do it. It's just, it's just very good, I think. I, well, I love doing it anyway. Uh, I, think, I think it makes a huge difference. And using the arts to do that is, is one of the best mechanisms for doing it. What would, what would you say your favorite memory is of being involved in the mental health arts movement in Scotland? Oh. Hmm. No, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. It could be. I, I think it was, this, this is such a selfish one, but when, when I launched um, Start, I went to Blackwell's Bookshop in Edinburgh, and um, I think there are about 60 people there for the reading. And I, I was with a friend, but also a slight hero called Andrew Gregg, who's a well-known author who was very complimentary about what I'd written. And um, many of the people who were in the audience were people I'd known from nearly 30 years beforehand who had come along to say, let's see what Graham's doing. And so it was a reunion of what you'd almost call comrades from a, from a long time ago when we were changing the world. But also um, uh, uh, about a fifth of my organization, the Mental Welfare Commission staff had come along to hear me read. And um, being there purely 
not purely being ha having an essential part of my role at the mental welfare commission having as being lived experience you can sometimes get a worry as to how accepted you are oh, sorry um in a um in an organization like that that's quite formal and so that was lovely to see all these people who were my colleagues who i was sometimes uncertain whether they even wanted me there coming along to the reading was was wonderful and then um then various writer people came along and that that was really good because there was one in particular who said it was a superb book and she's such a brilliant writer. It was really good. It was, it was a wonderful feeling. And also, I went along absolutely terrified. And um, usually when I'm at things like that, I can't do things, but I, I, I started performing. I, I managed to get people laughing on numerous occasions, which is completely unheard of. I went into this other, other realm and um, had the audience laughing and I had them moved and I told stories and it was all sort of off the cuff and I don't know how it happened but it's happened since then and it's a wonderful feeling which is I should say something more worthy about when we did something or something and changed the world but actually for me that that was the most empowering and validating thing to think that I, I actually had something to offer personally rather than as a worker or a community development worker. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, how would you like the relationship between mental health and the arts in Scotland to develop over the next five to ten years? Oh, I don't know. I like the Arts and Film Festival. Um, what would I like? I like that the Scottish Book Trust is busy trying to do work around mental health and the arts. I don't know enough about the scene and culture of the arts to know. I, I, I don't have a um, knowledge of how people work and how people think at a policy level on such things as the arts. Um, so in some ways I can't contribute. I, I, I want it to be involved, but I can't, I, I don't know the words to use for it. Uh, it's just, I, I just do the very naive, Oh, it should happen, shouldn't it? I don't know how it should happen. People should speak out. It should involve lived experience. Um, it should celebrate new people coming into writing or, or the arts or painting or acting. I would love to see that happening. Um, it would be good to see established artists mentoring other people, but a lot of that happens already. Um, I, 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 Actually, I was going to say I would love to have people to read my latest book, but I've got loads of people who are reading my latest book, so I can't say that. I've got people reading it, so... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Um, yes. That's great. Um, something I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about the particular challenges of being within a, a rural or smaller community where perhaps more people know each other. Um, do you think that the... Uh, mental health and arts communities have evolved differently in places like uh, Highland and Argyll and Butte than they have in in more urban regions. Um, I don't know. I'm sure they have, but I've mainly only witnessed it in in Highland, um, and yes, a lot of it comes through. Certainly in smaller communities, everyone does know what's going and that can be really successful sometimes because um, there's a community involvement in doing it. I think the best way to describe a successful version of that was not something I did 
although I contributed to a workshop, it was um, Ewan's room ran an arts event in um, Ardmerkin, which is a very small, tiny community. And um, it was wildly successful. It's, it's a very sad story because um, Ewan's room was set up in, in memory of Ewan, who was a young man who killed himself. And they, they set up to challenge isolation and loneliness and create connection in their community. And a lump, number of people in the community have done it. And it's, it's built into the community. It's, it's, it's when your friends are doing it and, and your mothers and your fathers and so on. It, it's where everyone's doing it together. And it's not a theatre coming in with laudable an ambitions, but no knowledge of the people in the community. It's coming from the people who live next door. And seeing that is is wonderful. We never got as far as close to doing that, I think, in Hug. But seeing that sometimes happen is is really lovely. And um, sorry for jumping around a little bit, but I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about your involvement with Moniac Moore. The, is that the Writers' Centre? Yeah. Um, yeah, just a little bit more about what that kind of entailed and what, what the impact was of the work you did with them. Right, let's see. I can't quite remember how it happened. I think Moniac Moore reached out to us. So it would have been Cynthia Rogerson at the time spoke to me and someone else and we talked about setting up a writers group and initially we met we met on the top floor of Hootenannies in Inverness which is a pub with three floors to it and they would let us have the top floor of, of the room for the afternoon and it had sticky floors and smelt of beer but we had a, we had a lovely time and we got, began to get to know each other. And Cynthia was really good. She had so many exercises to get us doing stuff. But she was also very good at helping us recognize that you didn't have to be brilliant at what you were doing, that we were doing this because we wanted to do it, and that there was no need to judge each other's work in a, um, in a judgy fashion. I don't know the word for it, that, that this was something you did for the love of it and for the um, liberation of talking about what you were doing and having conversations and having the bravery to read at the events. When we first started, most of us refused to read out our work at the end of the session. And um, by the end of it, people were always saying, well, is it time to read the stuff? So that was that, that, um, that, that joy at finding that you can give expression to your work and give expression to your own voice was lovely. And from that, they then suggested we go to these um, writers' weekends that were just for the Hug members, which was, oh, that was just lovely. I can't describe it properly. That We would always have guest writers, so we, pro we sometimes had um, Kevin McNeil or Laura Hurd and Cynthia Rogerson and that perked person beginning with an H and Alan Bissett once, I think. They were just fantastic. And, oh, and um, John Glende the poet and um we would arrive the first we would arrive on the friday and the staff would have cooked a meal for us so that was lovely if if you think um most of the hug members were on benefits so going to what seems like a hotel even if you do sometimes share rooms with staff bringing out a meal to you and 
being able to take wine with you and so on was um, lovely. And then you're sitting in, in the sitting room with a log fire going and everyone being lovely to you. And you can get up when you want and so on. And there's food for you to help yourself to. You can drink as much coffee or tea or eat as much bread or whatever you want to do as you want. And you've got your own room. That was, that was lovely. And then for the next day, we would do exercises in the morning with whichever of the um, writers was there, whichever the guest writers was there, and do some readings from our exercises. And then in the afternoon, we would have to ourselves to do our own writing and to see tutors with our own work. And I would engage in that. And sometimes I'd be supporting some of the members who needed someone to talk to too. Then in the evening, we would, I can't remember what we'd do. We, we would cook our own meal then. We would cook our evening meal. And then we would finish the weekend with um, what we called a Kaylee at the end. So people who could sing, sang, people who could play musical instruments, played their instruments. And other person, people did spoken word performances or poetry. And people just went away feeling really good. It was, in fact, we didn't quite know how we deserved it because it was such a good experience. And we, we didn't always come up with a project, a product. We didn't come up with a, um, a book or a pamphlet to give to the world. But it was a lovely feeling. And it was, um, it created a, a great bond between us, all of us. And that encouraged us in a lot of the work we did later in public performances or in our own speaking out in other ways. And how, how were those um, writing weekends funded? Initially, they were funded by Moniach Moore, and then they were part funded by us through a grant from Comic Relief. So we were really lucky. Most of our arts activity was funded through grants that we got from either TSB or Comic Relief, which allowed us to put the right resources into it. Because um, I think the plays, I talked about the plays earlier, the plays cost about 16,000 for um, 28 performances. So it was an expensive thing to do. And Moniak Moore was funded uh, by Comic Relief too, which was, was good. And then, then it dried up. And I think neither Moniak Moore nor us had money. We had a few smaller sessions with Inverness Museum and they may have part funded it. I think maybe it was Inverness Museum and Moniak Moore funded some of our work around the traveling community and the artistic thing we did in Ullapool. I can't quite remember, but I know that once the comic relief grants dried up, a, a lot of the artistic activities also dried up, as did some of the films we made and things like that. And when, when um, those events were, were running, how easy was it to get people involved, to get people to come along to them? Oh, it was quite easy. People, people enjoyed it. Um, we, we had quite a vibrant community, so it was, it was quite easy to get people involved and getting, doing things. It was, um, we, we never had so many people, we had to turn people away. We, actually, we did a few times with Moniach Moore, but we very rarely, but usually, usually we would get the numbers filled quite, quite easily. And yeah, people, people just enjoyed what they were doing. It was, um, because we went along to this place which was treated us so beautifully and had such respect for us and our experiences that um, you just felt, you felt like royalty. So you, it's quite easy to get people to go along when you're feeling, you're feeling really treated and that people like what you've got to say.
And I was just interested in across all of the different the different works that you've done, what what have been the key messages that you've wanted to get across during the time that you've been involved? Um, I think one of the messages I'm less happy that we tried to get across, especially with the plays, was that if you were distressed as a young person, you should reach out for help and speak to a trusted person. I think speaking to a trusted person was a good message, but I've become even more cynical over the years. And I think reaching out for help sometimes doesn't get you the help you need. And so I, I worry about that message. It did usually work when we said it and people said, I need help. But I think nowadays, um, especially in young people's services, it's so hard to get help that that message is a um, over-idealized message and an unrealistic message because I think it's cruel to speak to some young person who's lonely and upset and in distress and say, seek help, and they do, and they don't get the help they need. So that's a message I, I'm not sure I would give anymore, and I'm not sure what message I would give. And something about hearing our story and sharing our story, I think, I think that in itself can be good, but it's not a message. Um, it's, I don't think I have a message in a way. I think I have a message that um, everyone has a story and every story deserves to be heard and they're all precious.